Matthew chapter 26, our study in this section of Matthew of the Passion of Jesus Christ brings us to events and stories with which we are familiar. And so I think it is, it is a challenge to all of us to read the scriptures afresh and to learn new truths from words that we are, have read for many time, many times before. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. We'll read that passage and ask Neil Slater if you would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let us pray. preparing for this week's message on Judas. On a whim, I looked up one of those websites of the popular boys' names. I've known a few Judases in my day, but never anyone actually named Judas. 
It turns out that in 2014, Judas ranked 7,233rd. 2015, only three boys were named Judas, and you still wonder what was wrong with those parents. It's not a popular name. It's, it's a variant of Judah. It's a Hellenization of the name Judah, which, which is popular. It's used fairly frequently even among us Gentiles. But in 2015, Judas was beat out by Osias, Pax, and Quaid. Now, it may be a coincidence that Judas happens to be the name of the man who betrayed Jesus Christ, but, but I don't think so. And it's interesting that Western society, at least, has, has attached the deepest opprobrium to that name, so that it has now become synonymous with treachery, so much so that most reasonable parents would never even think of naming their son Judas. But I think this passage presents us with a different problem than what to name our children. It presents us with the problem that has uh, taxed the strengths of theologians for 2,000 years, perhaps more, when you consider the theologians and the rabbis of Judaism. And that problem is the relative nature of divine sovereignty with human responsibility. On the one hand, we have Judas, whose betrayal of Jesus was like, as Shakespeare said, of the treachery in Henry V's day, another fall of Adam. Here was a man who had perhaps more advantages than did Adam. He had been chosen by the Messiah to spend time, intimate time, with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He had seen what Jesus had done. He had heard what Jesus had taught. And yet against that light, Judas betrayed his Lord, his master, his rabbi, into the hands of men whom he knew wanted Jesus dead. But on the other hand, it was meant to be. Passage that Ariel read from this morning, John chapter 17. Jesus says in verse 12, And not one of those whom you have given me has perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And Jesus prayed these words before he was betrayed. And we have indication even earlier in the ministry of Jesus that he knew that Judas was in fact a, a Judas, although the name obviously didn't mean treachery then. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, addressing the disciples gathered in the upper room before the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, said to them, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And so it was meant to be. And we have one of the most powerful examples in Scripture of divine sovereignty overlaying human responsibility. And frankly, we often don't know what to do about it. In recent literature, Judas has actually been portrayed as a hero, as one who brought about the necessary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and for his role in the atonement, he is praised. 
Now that just shows how twisted men can get when they try to solve the insoluble, when they try to unmystify the mysterious. We cannot deny from Scripture the Old Testament does indeed foretell that one close associate, one who ate bread with me, will lift up his heel against me. Those are the words of David to which Peter alludes. But Scripture and our own experience and our own conscience will not let Judas off the hook. And I don't think there's any machinations of theologians and writers that will ever cause the name Judas to become popular or cause it to mean anything else but the deepest and darkest hue of treachery that we can imagine. And so who's to blame? The judgment of history blames Judas and places the entire responsibility of his act upon him alone. He, is, he has become the epitome of betrayal without the least justification to argue in, be, in behalf of his action. J.C. Ryle said he saw what Abraham and Moses never saw. He heard what David and Isaiah never heard. And as I said, it was like a second fall of Adam. Whereas Adam walked with God in the garden, Adam never saw before his own fall the effects of sin on the lives of mankind. He never saw the corruption that man himself was about to bring into creation. He never saw oppression. He never saw injustice and inequity. Judas grew up with all of that. He, he grew up in an occupied land. He grew up in a land where his own people were oppressed by a military power that controlled the known earth. He saw injustice. He saw inequity. He saw the corruption of sin. And then he saw the light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He heard the words that Peter said are from the mouth of God. You have the words of life. And we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He saw the power. He was among the twelve and then of the seventy-two who went out into the villages casting out demons. He saw the miracles when the five thousand were fed from just a few loaves and a couple of fishes. In my opinion, comparing Judas's situation to that of Adam, it was worse than another fall of man. He was sinning against a greater light, a light that he had experienced. Why did he do it? Have you ever wondered that? Why did he do it? The most common answer is he did it for money. We're told by John that Judas was the keeper of the purse. Those who donated money to Jesus' ministry, Judas was the one who, who was the treasurer. And John tells us that he used to steal from that. So, yes, he was a, a greedy man. But I don't know that we can conclude that he did it for money. He asks them, what will you give me and I will betray him? And that does indicate that he was looking for some type of financial reward. Maybe he felt gypped because that perfume that had just been wasted on Jesus was not sold 
and the money given to the poor. We might envision Judas looking at the value, a year's wages, and saying, boy, I could take from that and no one would notice. There would still be plenty left for the poor. Well, that was taken away from him, and perhaps he thought, well, I'll, I'll get my two cents. In a manner of speaking, that's kind of all he got. 30 pieces of silver wasn't a lot of money. In Zechariah, we're told 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave that had been gored by a man's ox. He was to redeem that crime against his neighbor's slave by paying his neighbor 30 pieces of silver. Later on, 30 pieces of silver became the burial price of a criminal. Really, the disposal price of the body because criminals were not intended to receive burial. 30 pieces of silver, various commentators and looking at the exchange rates of a shekel estimate somewhere between 10 and $60. Not a lot of money. And so Judas betrayed Jesus for far less than he had probably been reaping from the treasury of Jesus' ministry every day for three years. Maybe he was disappointed. That's a, that's a conjecture that's very popular among historians of Jesus and of the Passion account. Jesus just wasn't being the Messiah that Judas expected. And, and we can read in Scripture that the, the disciples didn't really know what was going on. Even John the Baptist was a little confused, wasn't he? He sent his disciples to Jesus asking him, Are, are you the one? Or, or should we look for another? Because frankly, you're, you're not doing things the way we thought you would do them. We don't really see you mounting a political campaign or a military campaign to overthrow the Romans, to reestablish the throne of David, to reestablish Israel as the primary nation in the Middle East. What's going on? Perhaps Judas was offended. Maybe his feelings were hurt. He was rebuked along with the other disciples, for their condemnation of Mary and her gift, anointing Jesus with that expensive perfume. So maybe, maybe he was disappointed, maybe he was depressed, maybe he was mad, or maybe he was possessed. John tells us that Jesus, during the supper, indicates that one of the twelve would betray him. And they ask, who? Who would it be? Which is an interesting question. Because apparently the other 11 never suspected Judas. I mean, in our mind's eye, we tend to picture Judas as dark and swarthy and maybe a patch over his eye and a limp, you know? There had to be something visual about Judas, right? But when Jesus said, my soul is troubled, one of you is going to betray me, they all like looked around, who? Who? Is, is it me? And Judas says, is it I, Lord? And Jesus says, he who takes of the morsel that I dip, it is he who will betray me. And John tells us that after Judas took the morsel, Satan entered him and he went out and it was dark. Boy, was it dark. So he was possessed. But that happened after he had gone to the chief priests. That happened after the passage that we're looking at. We haven't gotten to the supper yet. 
So something happened in Judas before Satan happened in Judas. We can't blame the devil on this. What can we conclude regarding Judas? Well, his motives are unknown, frankly. In fact, I bet they were unknown even to himself. And we have to remember that after events took their course, Judas was overcome with remorse, threw the money back into the temple, and then committed suicide. He was a tormented man without doubt. And I think we would look in vain to find out why a man would betray the most perfect man who ever lived. Why a man would give over the Lord of glory. Just as it doesn't make any sense that we should do the same every time we sin. It makes no sense, and there's no sense in trying to find sense in nonsense. Why did he do it? He was numbered among the twelve, but he was not numbered among the elect. John chapter 13, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet, and he said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Earlier, Jesus says, Have I not chosen you? the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. So here we're faced with that dilemma, that conundrum. Judas went out and asked the chief priest, what will you give me and I will betray him? Judas is the one who betrayed his master with a kiss. He is the one who chose to do it, and yet it is clear that he was intended to do it. Did he have a choice? That's the primary argument made by the Pelagian or the Arminian. If God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass, then how can man have a choice? And if man does not have a choice, how can he be responsible for what he does? And how can God hold him to account? This argument has been around as, as long as Paul's writings to the Romans. And Paul says, you will say to me then, why does God find fault? For who can resist his will? Why do we fault Judas? Why don't we just say, you know what? He couldn't do anything different. Really not his fault. Because it was, it was way back in David's day when he wrote those words, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, if, as Peter says, the events that we're reading about are the fulfillment of that prophecy, then we need to revise our mental image of Judas. Indeed, he's, he's listed last in all of the lists. Peter's first, Judas is last. But you know, they were all written after the fact. And yet they color our mental image of the association of the disciples. And, and I know I have always been guilty in my mind's eye of, of envisioning the gathering of the disciples. And of course, John is right there with his head upon Jesus' bosom. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and then there was Peter talking, no doubt. But way off there in the shadows, right? Isn't that how you see it? Off in the shadows lurked Judas. But he was my close friend in whom I trusted. Why would Jesus entrust 
this man with the money. Jesus knew the heart of all men. Again, it was like a second fall of Adam. A second fall of man. It was not that way in the beginning. It became it. At a point in time, and perhaps that feast in Bethany was the moment. When Judas's course changed. How do we explain that? Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, the same passage that we're looking at just a little further on, teaches us this dynamic between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we cannot unravel without error. Jesus says, the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. There's no getting around that, folks. What has been prophesied will come to pass. And God will work all his good pleasure in the lives of men. But then Jesus says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that he had not even been born. There's responsibility. There's the free will with which every man from Adam down to ourselves sins against God. We sin willingly, freely, and uncoerced. We cannot say the devil made me do it, nor can we say that prophecy made me do it. Every thought in Judas's mind was his own and was in rebellion to God and to God's only Son. And so God works his will in a way that is mysterious to us. We ask the question, if the scriptures foretold that Jesus would be betrayed, how could Judas not betray Jesus, right? When the time came, could, G could Judas have said, I'm not going to do it. Let someone else do it. I'm not going to do it. No, he couldn't have. And if Judas was predestined to betray Jesus, how can he be held responsible? Aren't these the questions that people ask us whenever we mention election, divine sovereignty, predestination? Oh, my God wouldn't do that. See, my God doesn't know what's going to happen. To which I said, that's not really much of a God, is it? Maybe it would have been one of the other 12, right? But you know, to narrow it even down to 12 is pretty remarkable. When Jesus selected the 12, he was narrowing down the field. I think he knew more than it would be one of these 12. I think he knew which one it would be. But you know what? I, I have to think that Jesus loved Judas no less than he loved the other 11. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. But was Judas really one of Jesus' own? Well, I want to give you a comparison this morning between two of the disciples who had similar experiences. But I want you to consider this that the argument between predestination and free will 
too often centers on what God's love or God's fairness demands rather than on what man's sin deserves. We look at the problem from our understanding of God or what we have created in our mind as far as what God should do or what he shouldn't do. It's not fair that he would choose one and not another. Rather than looking as the scripture does at what our sin deserves and what is it that makes us to differ? Is it our own free will? Or is it, is, God, is it God's grace? You know, none of the disciples did very well this week that we're talking about. Zechariah predicted, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And they all did. John does show up at the cross. But where are the rest of them? So none of them could brag, hey, you know, I stood in there. I hung it to the end with Jesus. No. We're told in the garden when the when the uh, officers came to arrest Jesus, they fled. All the disciples ran. One of the youngest, he was not yet a disciple, but he ran so fast he left his cloak. So none of them did all that well. None of them did well at all, but two of them in particular stumbled flat on their face. The first one mentioned in every list, Peter, and the last one, Judas. What is the difference between betrayal and denial? Why is it that we read about Peter's denial and we still name our sons Peter? But we read of Judas's betrayal and we don't name our sons Judas. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you for, before the Father in heaven. He made no distinction between the two, did he? Their path is very similar. I don't know if you've you've ever kind of caught the path of these two men, these two disciples. We are told in the Gospel of John that Satan entered Judas. But we're also told that Jesus said to Peter, 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 Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. You see, these, these two men were, in a sense, equally targeted. And I believe, and, and when we get to that, I think we'll have opportunity to talk about it more. Jesus said, I, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. Do you know what that morsel was that he gave to Judas? It was his life. And immediately Satan entered Judas. You see, Satan can't do what God doesn't allow him to do. Satan can do no more than he is allowed by God to do. And Jesus Christ is eternal God. And up until that moment, Judas was powerless. But then he received power from down low. And Jesus gave himself into his hand. And so Jesus' response to Judas' interaction with the devil was, that which you do, do quickly. But what did he say to Peter? And this is really the crux of the matter. Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. There's the difference right there. It's nothing in Peter. It's nothing in Judas. It's all in Christ, who intervened by the will of God, which is inscrutable, on behalf of Peter, but not on behalf of Judas. He was no more obligated to intervene for Peter than anyone else. And where would Peter have gone 
had Jesus not prayed for him? Would he turned? Would he have strengthened his brothers? Would he have become a pillar of the church, as Paul calls him? Would he become the chief of the apostles? No. He would have gone on in his denial. He perhaps would not have betrayed Jesus, but he would have denied Jesus. And his sin would have been as great as that of Judas Iscariot. There's the difference. It's not the triumph of human will over temptation. It's not Peter finding in himself after he's fallen into dust faith to rise up again and to believe. No, that's not it. That's what we read. We read the outcome of the source, and that was Jesus saying, I have prayed for you. Why he intervened on behalf of one and not the other, we cannot tell. And why he intervenes for you or for me, why we are numbered among the children of God by grace through faith, we cannot tell. Hopefully we know in our own hearts that it had nothing to do with us. It had nothing to do with me. Hopefully we can say with Paul that I am convinced that in me dwells no good thing. But we do know what makes us to differ. We can rest assured that God was sovereign over both Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. Neither one of those acts was outside the, the sovereign will of God as he orchestrates all events according to his will. But we can also rest assured that both acts, and in both acts, both men were acting entirely free and responsibly. They were acting according to the dictates of their own understanding and their own will. And the only thing that made the consequence to differ was the intervention of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that makes anything differ. The only thing that changes the course and path of our life is the intervention of Jesus Christ. When we turn over our soul to the one who loves us, and laid down his life for us. It is not because our will is stronger than the will of Judas. Because God, according to his mercy, according to his grace, has given us to Jesus. If you have given your life over to Jesus, then even if you fall as Peter fell, you will get up again. You will rise again and you will strengthen your brethren. And it's not because of your will and it's not because of any merit within you, but only because Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for you. May all glory and praise in salvation go to Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, we do not understand how your sovereignty and our responsibility work together, and yet we must affirm them both. We know ourselves to be responsible for our actions. We know that our decisions are not coerced, but that when we sin, we choose to sin. And yet we know that you are sovereign, that nothing surprises you and nothing moves or alters the path that you have set by the counsel of your own will. And so, Father, we rejoice 
that you are sovereign even over our wills, and that you have intervened on behalf of those who believe in Jesus Christ, and you have given us into the hands of your Son, from whose hands we will never be taken. Father, I ask that this truth might challenge us and might encourage us. Challenge us that we would live in accordance with the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ, but also to encourage us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, and in all things to give glory and praise and honor to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please rise this morning for the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.